This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question is, is it logical to believe in God? My guest today is Professor Greg Restall. Greg is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Melbourne, where he teaches philosophy and logic. He has published over 80 articles and is the author of three books and blogs at consequently.org. And he joins me now. Please welcome Greg Restall. Rapturous welcome there, Greg. Welcome to Bigger Questions. It's lovely to be here. It's great. Now, you're a logician, which apparently is different to a magician. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, actually, when you think about logicians and magicians, you might think that there's a lot of similarity between them. They both use long, complex words. I mean, there's not much of a difference between abracadabra and modus ponens. They've been around for you know a couple of thousand years at least, mm-hmm. but only one of them gets you a gigs at children's birthday parties. Right. Okay. You don't get you don't get many invitations. Get many okay. Right. Now to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today we're talking with Greg Restall about if it is logical to believe in God. So Greg, our smaller questions to you today are, how well can you do logic problems? Now, do you feel qualified Um, at all? I've got a PhD in logic, so I should. (laughs) I'll tell you now, I'm a slow thinker, so if I get these right, I'll be happy. Okay, so if you fail this test, will you lose your professor of logic? Not if you're all good at keeping a secret. Okay, right, okay. Now, there are two logic problems that you need to solve. Okay. okay. The first one is, the first involves me making four statements. Which of these four statements is true? A, the number of false statements here is one. B, the number of false statements here is two. C, the number of false statements here is three. Or D, the number of false statements here is four. Which of those four statements is true? Ah, this is where I wish I had a blackboard or a whiteboard to write them on. Oh, uh, you don't. So we don't. I'm going to need to do that. The number of false statements here is one. Uh, if that that can't be right, uh, because if that was right, then the other three would be false, right? Uh, Correct. The number of false statements here is two. If that is right, then all of the uh, then three of them are wrong. Correct. The number of false statements here is three. If that is right, then the other three are wrong. I'm going to stop there and lock in three. And or, or, B, or C, 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 the third one. Right. Correct. Is that and correct? the answer is C. Oh, phew. Yes, oh. exactly oh. as you okay. have defined. Well, okay. I could be getting a fifty percent. I'm, fe- I'm feeling pretty. Oh. I'm feeling okay. pretty okay. warm here. Okay. We've got a pretty hot. Logician we'll, here. We'll see how we go. Uh, okay, the second one is a milkman has two empty jugs, a three-liter jug and a five-liter jug. Oh, there's numbers here. This is not good. Uh, this is not good. How can he measure exactly one liter without wasting any milk? A three-liter jug, and this this is not a logic problem. This is but a mathematics. It was on a website ma- that had logic this, problems. This is a mathematics problem. It's got numbers <laughs> in it. I don't like is numbers. Uh, three and five. Mm, uh, I'm tempted to say uh, you get a one-liter bottle of milk from the. <laughs> from the- 
use that. So with a three-litre jug and a five-litre jug, we want to measure... One litre without wasting Without any wasting. Milk. So, look, let's try filling up the three-litre jug, yep. uh, pouring it in the five-litre... No. Yes. Yeah, pouring yes, it yes. In, yeah, pouring it in the five-litre jug. I can see where this goes now. This is good. At least the numbers are small. So <laughs> fill up the three-litre jug, pour it in the five-litre jug, then... Fill up the three-litre jug again and pour it into the five-litre jug very carefully. I'm not good at this because I'm spilling things because yeah, I'm really okay. bad at this. But at the moment at which the five-litre jug is full, stop pouring and then you'll have one litre left in the three-litre jug. How and does that sound? That sounds correct. Oh, Big round of applause. <laughs> wow. That's... That's, that's, this is way more practical than the problems I usually do. Right, okay, well, we'll get to that in a second. But, Greg, you got two out of two of our smaller questions right. You have been confirmed as a professor of logic. Please Thank give you. Greg a big round, big round of applause. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Greg, is teaching logic just giving your classes difficult logic problems? No, as you can see, this stressed, <laughs> this stressed me out a great deal and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to cause that much stress to my students. No, I, I do mainly teach logic at the University of Melbourne and there it's kind of a mix between some things that do look fairly technical and mathematical, like proving things and truth tables and symbols and all of that sort of stuff. But because I teach it in a philosophy department too, some of what we do is sort of stepping back and looking at the assumptions behind those things or looking at the connections between those technical things and how concepts work or how we can reason and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it tends to be both some sort of technical problem-solving things and then more reflective trying to understand things from philosophical positions. Okay, so what happens when you say that you're a philosopher at a party? Uh, most people's eyes kind of glaze over mm -hmm. or they might say, oh, who's your favourite philosopher? Or they might say, oh, let me tell you about my philosophy. I'm not sure which of those answers strike more dread in my heart <laughs> when I hear, the, hear it. I should have a good answer to the question who, who your favourite philosopher is, but usually the kind of people that I will say will be people that people haven't heard of. Okay. So, so that's the kind of thing. That so who is like. your favourite philosopher? Yeah, that's a really good... Uh, at the moment... Uh, at the moment I'm on a bit of a Wittgenstein kick. Uh, oh, no, yeah, I've heard of yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. I can't spell his name. Yeah, but uh, it starts with a W, ends in a Stein. All right, okay. Yeah. In 2011, famed physicist Stephen Hawking declared, philosophy is dead. So is philosophy important in everyday life at all? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm paid to teach philosophy, so of course I'm going to answer that question uh, in the positive sort of way. Of course, philosophy is really important in everyday life because one way of thinking about what philosophy is is understanding how things work, how our ideas fit together, and one way of thinking about philosophy is it's doing to ideas or concepts or reasons what physicists do to our physical world. They sort of zoom in and look at the most fundamental principles of things. Uh, I think anybody who is interested in answering questions, giving reasons for things, or understanding the world has a philosophical position or has a philosophy. They've got a way that their ideas hang together. The philosophers are the ones that kind of slow down and look at those things much more carefully and professionally. At least that's what professional philosophers do. And insofar as we're people that have got you know, try and understand our world and give reasons for things and argue with each other. We're all doing philosophy. It's just that some of us do it 
professionally and are lucky enough to get paid for it. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's really important. And Stephen Hawking, although he's great as a physicist, I wouldn't use him as a guide to understand whether philosophy has a place in the world. Yeah. Well, in fact, Blaise Pascal once said, to ridicule philosophy is yes. really to philosophize. That's exactly right. Uh, and so that's an interesting response. Now, your interest in philosophy actually began as a religious quest. Yeah. So can you tell us what happened? Can you tell us some of your story? Yeah, yeah. for me, I uh, grew up in Brisbane and grew up in a nominally Christian family at first, but my mum started attending a reasonably conservative Baptist church when I was at school, and I became a believer during that time. Um, this was the kind of church where at church services on Sunday afternoons there'd be, you know, chorus singing and altar calls and t- opportunities for people to give their heart to Jesus. And I think I became a Christian... 10, 20 times during that period as prayers were prayed and I gave my heart to Jesus as an enthusiastic young person. Uh, Then I was the first person in my family to go to university uh, as a university student in the 80s. And there I was a bright young thing. I was doing mathematics and science and uh, doing a Bachelor of Science at that time. And at that time, my sort of intellectual world was beginning to open out. And that was a time when I started questioning those things that I was believing, not in a really, you know, crisis of faith sort of thing, but more a, can my belief in God, can my love of Jesus kind of grow as my mind was growing in other areas? And so I started reading lots of things, and the things that I enjoyed reading tended to be things by people that I discovered later were philosophers that were showing how ideas fit together, that were showing how you could understand belief in God just as well as you could understand, you know, doing mathematics or doing science or doing other things. And that sort of turned me on to the love and the passion of doing philosophy. So it was actually trying to understand or connect with your Christian faith more yeah, that yeah. actually led you to love philosophy. Yeah, one, one way of understanding the relationship between philosophy and theology or philosophy and religion is thinking of uh, philosophical approaches to these things as faith-seeking understanding. I had a faith in God. I loved Jesus, and I wanted to understand that, and I wanted my faith to kind of grow in a way where I could uh, that could grow up up just as much as my ideas about other things were growing at the time too. And that led me to philosophy. And so you really, in some ways, were trying to connect the heart to the head. Yeah, that's, definitely. That's yeah, how you very felt. much so. So you said that you fell in love, or you loved Jesus. Mm-hmm. What was it about Jesus that captivated you? The things that sort of kept with me and stayed with me and have stayed with me from that time to now is both what he said and who he was, or what he says and who he is. There's something very captivating in Jesus' teaching about God and the images and parables and explanations about what it was to love God and love your neighbor that you find in the the Gospels, but there was one of the striking things that people said about Jesus was that he taught with authority, not like the scribes. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a scribe or anything, but there was something that was not derivative about how Jesus was describing things. There was something that he had that you could see he wasn't just teaching because it had been passed down to him. There was something that he knew and experienced about God and revealed about God that when I saw him in the stories in the Gospels, I thought, wow, I want that. I want to have that relationship with God that Jesus has. I want to follow Jesus and be his disciple and love God in the way that he does. 
So that was, that's the kind of thing that was captivating then and has remained captivating for me now. Now, a question has come through which relates to, to what mm -hmm. you've just been saying. You said that you wanted to connect your faith to philosophy, but were you actually open to philosophy disproving your faith? Definitely, uh, especially in the sense that I was very open to the idea of my ideas being naive or infantile or something and needing to grow up and learn more in the same way that my understanding of the physical world was kind of my 10-year-old understanding of the physical world was reformed and shaped by, you know, learning high school and early university physics. I was very happy with the idea that my Sunday school understanding of what God was like was going to need to be, you know, grown up or something or toughened up or uh, revised in the light of, you know, other people, you know, showing me things. So I was open to that. I've never had the kind of crisis of faith in the sense that, oh my goodness, uh, I went through a period where I really believed that there wasn't a God. And many people do. Many people do that and go through that and come to believe in God again. And many, some people don't. That's never been one of my experiences. But for me, my faith in God has been my faith in God and not my faith in my idea of God. And I've been prepared for my ideas of God to be challenged. Mm -hmm. Let me put it that way. In the Wall Street Journal in 2010, outspoken atheist comedian Ricky Gervais said, I don't believe in God because there is absolutely no scientific evidence for his existence. And from what I've heard, the very definition is a logical impossibility in this known universe. Is Ricky Gervais right? Now, your personal experience may somewhat mitigate oh. that, but <laughs> is by God definition a logical impossibility or is it logical to believe in God? I want to get to answering your last question because that's the, the question that we... You know, have advertised. That's, That's a bigger big... question for today. I'll get to that. Uh, no, Ricky Gervais. Obviously, obviously, he's wrong. It's obvious to me. Uh, okay, uh, next but, question. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Well, yeah, he's wrong. Why, why is he wrong? Uh, but, why is he wrong? Uh, well, he's, it, it's you know, uh, an idea that has been around for so long is not going to have a flagrant contradiction hiding in it that, you know, we've only been smart enough to understand in the 20th century or something like this. You know, people have believed in God for ages. And there's, of course, people's naive idea of God. Uh, I mean, maybe one of the paradoxes that, uh, you know, Ricky Gervais means is, oh, you know, the kind of puzzle that a five-year-old might think of, you know, can God create a stone that's too heavy to lift? You know, if he can, then, oh, now there's something that he can't do lift the stone and if he can't now there's something that he can't do so he can't be omnipotent I mean people have thought of this that's not a paradox right I mean that's not a possible thing for anybody to do so it's not it's not something that you know we need to hold God to be able to do so you know these sorts of naive paradoxes they're not there yeah, there are deep questions about what it is to believe in God, and there are real issues like the problem of evil and other things like that, but they're not obvious flagrant contradictions that you know, somebody like Ricky Gervais can just hear that it's been proved to be inconsistent. But uh, more important, I think, is your last question, which is, is it logical to believe in God? And here, unfortunately or fortunately, is where my sort of professional philosopher hat comes on. And I say, there's three different things that you could mean by this question. Let me take these in turn. Uh, there are three different things that you could mean by this question. You know, there's that naive everyday meaning, is it logical to do this? Where we mean, does it make sense? That's one question. Then there's the question, is it logical in the sense that is it consistent? And that's the thing that I partly talked about there, mm. which is, you know, is there a contradiction hiding in the idea? And then there's the, is there a 
a conceptual or a, or a philosophical reason for? Can this be proved or demonstrated? And I think those three things are connected, but they're separate. For the first, I think the first is actually a really important question. You know, does it make sense? Does it make intuitive sense? Is there a reason for doing this? Because I imagine that, you know, my 15-year-old uh, comes home from school and says, Dad, I've finally discovered what my life's passion is going to be and what I'm going to devote the rest of my life to. I'm going to collect red paper clips from now on to the end of my life. Uh, if somebody heard this, that he's devoting his life to collecting red paper clips, you might think, that's not very logical. And then being the son of a, son of a logician, he might say, there's absolutely nothing inconsistent about devoting one's life <laughs> to collecting red paper clips. There is nothing, there is no contradiction that is there. It is a passion that one could indulge and I would be reasonable to does anybody do this I don't want to offend you I don't want to offend you uh, I think belief in God is not like uh, a crazy obsession like collecting red paper clips I think fundamentally it's not just belief in God but being a Christian and having a life that is devoted to loving God and loving your neighbor that is actually a life well lived that is not a kind of a life which is avoiding problems it's not a, a life which is avoiding the world it's a life that motivates you to go out into the world and do good things and be humble and fit things together in a in an overall you know coherent worldview which I think is is wonderful and you know I recommend to everybody so it makes sense. It's not crazy in that sense. But more importantly for me as a philosopher, the second and the third answers to that question, is it inconsistent? I've already said no, it's not inconsistent. If you want to press me on that, we can do that. Then there's the third question, which is, is it logical in the sense that are there reasons for it? Uh, do the ideas hang together? Are there arguments for the existence of God or are there arguments for being a Christian? And here I'm going to say the answer is yes, there are. They're not the kinds of arguments which are going to be universally convincing of everybody from every persuasion at all times. Well, that's obvious because professional philosophers disagree. Profe in fact, you know, this is, this is one of the only things that people laugh at when I, you know, oh, no pressure on you to laugh at this joke which is coming up. But anyway, <laughs> it's a philosopher's joke. A philosopher, yeah. it's, it's not a very good joke. But when, when, we, uh, when you get five philosophers in a room, you tend to get at least six or seven different opinions about everything. <laughs> that's the way that we roll. We love exploring the alternatives and all of those things. And so I've got philosopher friends that aren't Christians. I've got philosopher friends that are Christians. I don't think they're being inconsistent or crazy, I disagree with them about things in the same way that I might disagree with them about their politics or about a whole bunch of other things. But I do think that there are reasons which can prompt us to look in those directions, like the arguments to uh, the existence of God from causes and the first cause. What is it to be in a universe where things come up for no reason? What is it like to be in a universe where there is a first cause out of which everything arose? What's the connection between purpose and design and the world? And other things like that. These arguments that philosophers have given to say, here are reasons to believe in God. I think they're good and interesting and useful. But for me, fundamentally, my reason for believing in God is that I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus. And that's why I believe in God, because I'm following him and I want to follow the God that Jesus reveals. Mm. Now you mentioned before the problem of evil yeah. affecting that consistency. So yeah. why is the problem of evil not a logical reason to disbelieve? And you've got one minute. Oh, my goodness. So. <laughs> okay, okay. So obviously, uh, there are tensions between the idea that God is really, really good, that God is really, really powerful 
powerful and that there is evil in the world. Because the more powerful and the more good you are, the more uh, you are going to be motivated to prevent or to uh, um, get rid of evil. Okay? If, I'm, if I love my child and my child is suffering, I'm going to want to mitigate that suffering. If God is the parent of us all and we are suffering, God is going to want to mitigate that suffering. I totally agree with that. There are questions about how to best go about doing that and whether snapping your fingers and getting rid of all of the evil now is going to ultimately be the best way of doing that or whether a slower and longer term process which involves renovating and revolutionizing the entire universe is the right way to go about that. What makes me think that maybe the slower process is an important one, two reasons, I can see this is how God overcomes evil in Jesus, but another more personal thing is if God is going to snap God's fingers and get rid of all of the evil in the world, I see that there is a battle between good and evil that goes on in me and I know that I'm going to be a casualty if God snaps God's fingers and gets rid of all of the evil in the world. I'm glad that God is not doing that in that way and that I can get to be a part of the process of renovating things. That's the beginning of an answer to that question. That's very helpful. Thank you very much. Well, today's big question is, is it logical to believe in God? And perhaps surprisingly, well, Greg's already alluded to the fact that the Bible also offers an answer. In a letter found in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to the early church in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, Paul says this about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So Greg, how does this help us answer the question of if it's logical to believe in God? A couple of different ways. One thing is that, you know, it's through passages like this and it's through this image that it is in Jesus that we get to see who God is. That that's one reason why in answer to the question, what's your reason for believing in God? Fundamentally, I believe in God because I believe in Jesus. It's because I see in him, both in what he said and in who he is, I get to see who God is and what God is like and what it means, not only to intellectually understand God, but to love God and to love my neighbor. That's one thing, but also, Uh, One thing that I think is very important is that believing in God, it's not kind of an isolated, theoretical, uh, intellectual-only point. Believing in God is connected to how we understand the whole world. And for me, as a Christian, believing in Jesus is connected to how I understand the whole world and how I orient myself to the whole world. This is, you get this image of it, it's in Jesus that the whole world, you get to see the purpose of the whole world and the whole world hangs together. It's, uh, I'd be very worried if my belief in God became a kind of hermetically sealed thing, which was disconnected from what I believed about, you know, politics, what I believed about loving my neighbor, what I believed about what the important things in life were. Or red paperclips. Or, re- or, pa- or the importance of red paperclips. I might, you know, it's very hard to be a Christian and to think that the important thing is to love God and love my neighbor and think that obsessing over red paperclips is the most important thing in the world. Mm, yeah, it's hard to see how you could do that. Mm. Uh, 
it is not so hard to see, I think, how, you know, being loving and committed in your relationships with those around you or caring for poor people or attempting to understand nature and help us live in nature well. You can see how all of those things might fit into a life of loving God and loving your neighbour if this is the world that God has made. So it's, it's for those reasons, I think, that that passage kind of inspires me not only to believe in God, but, but to believe in God in that sort of way. What verse 17 says, there in him all things hold together that's that's the way that you that's my way of understanding the world the way you see the world yeah, and perceive yeah, that yeah um, so in that sense, do you see a, a logical nature in God and in the universe, that, that the world is ordered and, and, and revolves around this? Yeah, indeed. One of these amazing things is um, the beginning of the Gospel of John. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And God was, uh, in, you see in Genesis, that God created this world by his Word. There you get this kind of amazing thought. I mean, word, the word for word there is logos. Is, uh, that's the root of logic. Uh, there is something amazing about being in this world, which is is sort of rationally ordered and structured and communicative that we can respond to nature, we can respond to this as God's creation and that we're not in a world where this kind of order and structure and understandability and intelligibility is kind of foreign or is just something that we impose onto it ourselves. It's something that we can also discover into it and be a part of. I think that's amazingly encouraging and humbling. To, to see that we're in a world like that. So is it significant then that you as a professional philosopher are more convinced of the logic of God through the person and work of Jesus than of philosophical arguments? I think one way of responding to that question is to, to understand the what's the right way of holding sort of reasoning and logical arguments. One thing that's always challenging to me is that, you know, in Jesus' teaching, he says, what's the most important thing? It's to love God and love my neighbor. Uh, that's what, you know, God has designed the universe for, according to Jesus. Thinking and reasoning is kind of a part of that, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is how I love God and love my neighbor. My ideas are gonna be a part of that. If my ideas are wrong, then maybe I'm not going to be, my ideas about God or my ideas about my neighbor, if they're wrong, that might mean that I'm not as good at loving them as I might otherwise be if I've mistaken beliefs about them or something. But for me, the reasoning is kind of a tool in the same way that you know, understanding my universe is kind of a tool or a, a part of a larger picture. And so I'm never going to think that my criterion for things has got to be, okay, this has got to tick all of the boxes, logically speaking, and I'm only going to believe something if I can tick all of the boxes, logically speaking, because I started believing before I started clearly thinking. Not only started believing in God, I started believing in that my mother loved me. I started believing all of these things. I can't help but be in this world. The question is how to do that kind of responsibly once I'm kind of in the ship of, you know, sailing through the ocean of this life. So logic's going to be a part of that, but it can never be the whole thing. Mm. So, Greg, yeah. is it logical to believe in God? Yes. <laughs> I can answer one question in one, one word, yes. Well, we have run out of time. Yeah. So let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, is it logical to believe in God? Colossians 1, 15 and 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things, and 
in him all things hold together. I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Please thank our guest today, Professor Greg Restall. Hi everyone, Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Thanks for listening to the show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. I thought it was great and I really hope you did as well. Now I just wanted to give you a quick reminder that tickets are still available for our next live Bigger Questions recording, How Can We Learn to Have Better Conversations About God? Greg Restall, who we've just heard, will be having a conversation with atheist Graham Oppie. It's going to be a conversation with real substance that goes well beyond shouting. 7pm, Tuesday 30th of July at Campari House in the City of Melbourne. Get your tickets at citybibleforum.org slash conversations. And also we're about to do a series of four bigger questions recording at St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Moreland in Melbourne's Inner North over the next four Sundays. At 10am at 100 Sydney Road in Moreland in Melbourne's Inner North, Sunday 21st, 28th of July and also 4th and 11th of August. Uh, you can check out storgmoreland.weebly.com for more information come along ask your big questions bring other big questioners and experience bigger questions live i'd love to meet you now don't forget to follow bigger questions on our social media pages facebook instagram and twitter and please share the show with your friends or colleagues let's get the word out and get more people asking the bigger questions in our world it'd be great to stimulate those conversations and also if you want to invest in bigger thinking well maybe you could support us on patreon For as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help create better dialogue around the bigger questions of life. So thanks for listening. I look forward to sharing next week as we reflect on 50 years since the moon landing when we ask the bigger question, why do we explore space? It's an episode out of this world and I look forward to joining you then. And remember in the meantime, just keep asking those bigger questions.